The old spiritual says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Now, I want to ask you to sing the song, but many of you just went back several decades, uh, possibly to when you were a kid in Sunday school or VBS, and I'm going to unfortunately burst some of your bubbles this morning and say that that song is both right and wrong. (laughs) Uh, the walls of Jericho certainly collapsed. We'll see that in a moment. We've already heard it read in the text. But there was not much of a battle to be fought for Joshua. Uh, what we see clearly in the text is that jo- God gave Jericho into Israel's hands. The whole account centers on God's grace to Israel. Uh, if there's ever a chapter in the Old Testament that would be a case study for us of the Lord being the hero of a text, it's this chapter. And would you believe this morning if I told you that the walls coming down in the text are not even the most important part of the story? Uh, they're, 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 in, they're in there. It's, it's a detail that we need to observe, but it's not even the most important part of the text before us this morning. So give you a bit of recap in case you haven't been with us in a while. Israel is under their new leader, Joshua. Uh, they've entered into the promised land miraculously as God has dried up the body of water, the, the river Jordan before them, reminiscent of the Red Sea as, as Moses led them out of Egypt. And last week we saw that though it seemed an opportune time to strike, to begin the conquest, to uh, rightfully uh, gain everything that God had promised them that they would, God would not allow it. He halted the Israelites. He, he uh, kept them from firing the sh- first shots of the conquest uh, because he had more important issues to deal with, namely their covenant obedience, their relationship with him, their hearts before him. Uh, had to be dealt with before they began to engage um, the people in the land of Canaan. And so uh, th- they'd been living in disobedience. That's what we, we discover in, in last week's text is that they had been living in disobedience, not circumcising themselves as a sign of their covenant relationship with God, uh, looking like the rest of the nations around them. And so God's more concerned, we saw this last week, with their hearts than he was with their enemies and their, their armies Um, The biggest problem that lie before Israel was not the Jordan River. We've already watched God conquer that. Not the armies or the giants in the land. Their biggest problem was their disobedient hearts. And so they circumcised themselves before the Lord as a sign of their renewed commitment to him. And now they're ready. The people of Israel are ready to enter into the land and to gain the land uh, for themselves. Joshua is ready as their leader. God is now ready for them as they've renewed their commitment before him. Uh, to give them the land. And so I want to show us this in, in four scenes this morning in the text. Uh, I know it's a lot of text, uh, the end of chapter six, I mean, end of chapter five and all of chapter six. And so, um, so we'll summarize some parts, we'll read some parts, but four scenes before us this morning, starting with uh, an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. You see it in verses 13 through 15. We'll read together. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Now, here's the scene before us. Israel has crossed over the Jordan, and uh, their miraculous manna, their bread from heaven, has ceased because Israel has feasted on the produce of the land. And so now with their bellies full of, of new food, exciting new taste that they've never even experienced as this new generation, uh, war is only a few hours away at this point. Behind them is the Jordan River that has returned to its normal flood season path of overflowing banks. And so there's no possible retreat. There's no looking back for Israel, only looking forward, only what's ahead of them. And before them, ahead of them, is the fabled city of Jericho with its mighty walls, its fortressed um, walls, and, and this city that, that's impenetrable. And no one in this generation, think about this, this, this previous generation has passed away that left Egypt. No one in this generation has ever seen a, a military battle like this. Uh, they, they've lived their entire lives as, as nomads in the wilderness, and the sight of Jericho must have been overwhelming. Yet war was imminent. It was upon them. And knowing Israel's past history, even remembering back to our study through uh, Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, knowing their past, grumbling and complaining, you can imagine that there's probably some buzz around the camp in these days before Jericho, just thinking about the overwhelming tasks that lie before them. And humanly speaking, General Joshua is bearing all this burden on himself. But the buck stops with him. He's, he's the one at the top. He's the one leading. He's the one that God has placed as uh, the leader of his people. And everything that, that he, he's seeing is going to fall on him. And whatever happens in Jericho in these next days is going to rest on his shoulders. And so you can imagine in these moments how badly he probably wished that he could just see his old buddy Moses again, right? That he faithfully uh, led under and served under for decades. He wished he could just sit down and have a conversation with his friend Moses and, and get some wisdom and, and learn from him. But there's no Moses. Moses is dead. He's the one in charge now. He's the leader now. And so Joshua slips away from the camp, from his people. Now, he probably had multiple reasons for this. He probably wanted to scout out the land for himself. He'd sent spies, but he probably wanted to see Jericho for himself, wanted to see what they were up against, wanted to perhaps spend some time alone with God to prepare his own heart, to hear a word from the Lord, to be comforted by God as we know that God's already done for him, even as we've studied this far in the book of Joshua. But verse 13 says that he was by Jericho. And the implication there in the Hebrew is that he's very close to the city, that he's managed to, to get right up next to the city. Uh, perhaps the, the, the possibility there is that he's even standing outside the city gates. That we'll learn in just a, a couple of verses he's, he's, uh, that, that's completely walled up, inside and outside, the text will say. He's very much probably under the cover of darkness, possibly uh, feeling not only the physical darkness and being able to see what lies before him in the, in, in the days and hours ahead, but even the spiritual darkness of that place. Remember, Canaan's not this happy land. It, it's a pagan land with debauchery. It's a, it's a terribly dark place, full of sin. And so he's possibly able, able to feel that as he's gotten close to the city geographically. And just that darkness of a pagan city that's very near, how ominous that must be, very near meeting the judgment of God. And there he was outside of the city of Jericho, perusing, spying, thinking, praying, reflecting. And then something catches his eye out of the periphery of his vision. Something catches his eye and he lifts up his eyes and what he sees startles him, causes his heart to beat faster, his breathing to become heavier. What he sees is a soldier in full battle armor with a sword drawn. Now, lesser men would have probably bolted at the sight of this. 
If I'm honest myself before you, I, I would have been out of there. Like, right, you're, you're, you're somewhere by yourself. Your army's way over here. You look up, and this mighty warrior is standing there with a sword drawn, but not Joshua. No doubt with his sword on his own, uh, or his hand on his own sword, possibly even with it drawn by this point, he strolls forward to meet this warrior. He calls out of the darkness. You see in the text what he says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you with us or are you against us? The implication here is if you're against us, it will be my steel for your steel. Joshua's no armchair general here. He's ready to go. He didn't know whether this was an Israelite, an Amorite, a Canaanite. He didn't know who he was up against or what their purpose was in being here. Further, he had no idea whether this encounter would be his own life or some benchmark in his spiritual life. He had no idea. This mystic encounter, though, was for Joshua his final personal spiritual confirmation before the conquest. The Lord affirms to him again what he's going to do through him and through Israel. And because of this encounter, he'll go into battle more boldly, more uh, courageous. And so what does all of this mean for us today as followers of Jesus? How do we apply an encounter like this in the text to our own hearts and lives? Well, none of us are standing outside of Jericho. None of us are staring at a fortress city. Um, None of us are standing before a mighty warrior of the Lord like this. But we all absolutely face circumstances, face challenges in our lives where we, we, we would be just as dependent upon the power of God. We would rest at the mercy and at the grace of God, just like Joshua does in this moment. And so in light of that, let the word of God encourage you today as you see Joshua's encounter with his commander. In this way, that you need to encounter the God of heaven. We can't live this life as believers. We can't follow Christ as his people, as Christians, without encountering him in his word and in community with his people. We can't follow him without encountering him. And so this is what Joshua has. He has an encounter with the Lord of hosts. And here's his question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And look at the answer. The answer's strange. He's met with an answer that's not really an answer. No, but. Well, no. what are you saying no to? Know that you're not with us or know that you're not with our adversaries? What kind of answer is no, but? Uh, the commander answers, but it's not really an answer to Joshua's question because Joshua's asking the wrong question. And it's, it's a demonstration to Joshua that, that this one that's confronting him um, is from the Lord. And that's what matters. I'm, I'm here today as a commander of the Lord's army on behalf of the Lord of hosts. He's not come to take sides. This one has come to take charge. And that's what Joshua quick, quickly realizes. He's asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of who this person is here for. It's will you submit yourself to the authority of the Lord? And Joshua realizes that, and you see it in his response. In two verses, and in verse 14 and 15, watch all that Joshua does to submit himself to the authority of the Lord. Verse 14, he falls on his face. Again, in verse 14, he worships. In verse 15, he places himself under the authority of whatever message he's about to hear from this commander. Verse 15, again, he removes his shoes because the place where he's standing is holy. Oh, the grace of God here for Joshua and for me and you. I mean, think about this. Joshua went to look at his problem, and he found himself meeting with God. He went to go see what what trouble was in front of him, and he met himself worshiping the God of the universe. I mean, so often, that's all we see, right, is our problems, is our, our circumstances. And we go to God to express them to him in prayer, or at least we should be. And then suddenly there's fresh light, there's fresh vision. We see the issues more clearly. 
The scriptures come alive to us. The Spirit of God comforts us in our time of need, and our time of anxiety. And in that moment, our dilemmas are viewed with godly perspective. This is, it's never been a question here of whether the Lord is on, on Joshua's side. That's been affirmed to him again and again and again. The question for us is not whether the Lord's on our side, but whether we will submit to his authority, to his rule over our lives. In a, in a moment, this commander could have snapped Joshua in half. The question was whether he's going to submit to the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority belongs to him. Are we worshiping at his feet? That's the right question. Are we falling under his lordship? Second scene, number two. We see strange commands given to the Lord's people. We see strange commands given to the Lord's people, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6. Now, keep this image in your mind of Joshua meeting with this commander. Uh, Joshua's bowed his face to the ground before this warrior. He's been instructed to remove his shoes, which he does at the end of verse 15. And this is the position that Joshua is in before this warrior. And the chapter division here, the fact that we go from chapter 5 to chapter 6, really messes us up. It's one continuous account. Um, and so that's why we would include this section with this week, and we didn't finish it last week with chapter 5, because what we see uh, next in these next seven verses are really the command that Joshua receives from the commander that he's just been confronted with. It's one continuous narrative. But we have verse 1 that sort of gives us some background, some context uh, for us as readers. Um, so don't let verse 1 disrupt the flow of what Joshua's about to receive from the encounter that he has. It's there more for our purposes. Read with me verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No, uh, none went out and none came in. And you can imagine verse 1 sort of as a, a parenthesis, right? Uh, the purpose is to show us as readers how hopeless this situation was before Israel. Uh, they were locked down. I mean, Jericho had shut the doors, shut the gates. Israel, on the other hand, had never seen combat. They'd never seen a walled city like this. And this city was, was, was impenetrable. Um, the fact that no one's going in, no one's going out, it, it signifies for us that this is, this is something they were prepared to do. And this verse is magnified when you get to verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. See what I mean there? God shows them this impenetrable city. It's given to us as the reader, uh, the, the circumstance that lie before them. And then God says, see, I've given it to you. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I, I, yeah, I see this city that's impenetrable. Nothing about it looks like you've given it to me. Instead, it looks like the opposite. It looks like it's going to be impossible to take. And then if that's not enough, though, God confirming, yeah, I've given it to you. Uh, God goes ahead and gives him some crazy details for how he's giving this city to Joshua, and it only gets more strange. And so pick, up, pick back up in verses 3 through 5, uh, remembering Joshua's position before the Lord. He's just worshipped. His, his shoes are off because he's still on holy ground. Verse 3, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Um, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now notice what you don't see in the description of what Israel should be doing to prepare to conquer 
Jericho. There's no sharpening of knives and spears and readying of the the battering rams and the catapults. There's no stretching and warming up for a strenuous battle. There's no uh, formation rehearsals, the things that you would expect to see before a military conquest. Uh, the, the, the maps rolled out on the table with the, with the strategy uh, mapped out before them. You, you see none of that. What you do see, though, are specific details that are to be followed without question. Look at the, the, how specific that God is on these details. March for six days, seven trumpets. Those trumpets should be ram's horns. And it should be before the ark. On the seventh day, you march seven times. And you blow those trumpets, and then you shout. And these are the, these are the details that you are to follow. And none of this was expected, none of this was orthodox, none of this made sense from a military perspective. The question was, will Joshua be obedient to this strange plan? And then second, would the people of Israel be obedient to Joshua as he's given them this plan? And everything is hinging here in the text upon God's strength, clearly God's strength, because there's nothing about marching in military battle that that makes sense for making a city wall fall down. So it all relies, it all hinges on God's strength and their obedience to God's plan. Would they be obedient? Then in verse 6, you see that Joshua is obedient by taking the word of the priests. Verse 7, he continues in obedience by taking the battle plan of the people. Can you imagine from Joshua's perspective? I have to go tell these people what? Like, like you want me to go tell these people that we're going to do some marching drills and then the walls are just going to fall? Like, Like, remove ourselves from years of hearing this story and imagine how foreign and strange and and, and, and idiotic that sounds the first time you hear it. Like, like these are normal people. They didn't have a a frame of reference for why that would make sense. Um, Can you imagine, on the other hand, from the people's perspective, wait, this is what God wants us to do? Like, I I know he's affirmed Joshua's leadership, and I know he led us through the River Jordan just like he did with Moses, so I don't question that, but this is incredibly strange. Yet the commands are met with obedience from Joshua and from the people. The New Testament actually teaches us as well that it's by faith, it's because they trusted God, it's by their obedience that this happened. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So which is it? Did the walls come down by God's sovereign will and his irresistible power? Yes, absolutely. Did the walls come down because of Israel's faith and their obedience to a seemingly strange plan? Yes, absolutely. They go hand in hand. And so this morning, as you're hearing the word of God, allow the spirit to work this truth into your heart. That though the plans of God may seem strange and they may not always make sense, and though the word of God may run contrary to the things in this world, it doesn't give you a pass on obedience. He's called you to obey his word. Now think about this picture. I'll give you a bit of background, and it even gets more strange. One commentary points out that the cities of Palestine at this time were not large cities. And so you look at archaeological remains and ruins, and Jericho uh, was about 740 feet by 265 feet, uh, with a circumference of 1,970 feet. Now, that may just sound like numbers to you, but what that means then is the path that they're marching around the city is not even a half mile. Think about what that means for Israel. Israel's not just a few people. They're a nation of people. And they're fighting men. They're men that would be marching are a nation of people. And so this means, realistically, that the head of their group of marchers would be back to camp and resting before some had ever even left the camp to march and make their circle around. Their train of marchers was longer than the path that they would be marching on. So think about the temptation here. 
how easily it would have been to be disobedient in this moment. This is a dumb plan. This will never work. Especially as you get to like day five and day six and you're just kind of like, this, this is silly. Maybe the, the cynic in the group, right? The one that doesn't believe this is going to work. He's, you know, and, and by that point, it's possible that Jericho, the, the citizens of Jericho are up in, the, in their homes in the wall hurling insults. Like, do you know how stupid you look? You're walking around this city. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to walk us to death? I mean, you can imagine as the insults begin to fly. And then, and then this, this, this one Israelite guy's like, my buddy Bill, he's already back from making his trip. He's already in his camp over in his tent. I'll just go hang out with him. It'll look like I've already made my trip. I don't have to go today. That's not what happens. They believed God. They trusted in his plan, even when it seemed strange and impossible. And even when it went against everything that they imagined could take place. Will you render this kind of obedience to God today? Will you live under the authority of God's word even when it goes against everything you hear and see in your workplace? Will you submit to the authority of God's plan when it runs contrary to everything in your family, everything that you believed growing up, everything that that may have been in the way that you were raised? Will you prioritize his word, his authority, his plan in your life even when it seems strange? Number three. Third scene that we see before us in the text. We see the detailed fulfillment of the Lord's strange plan. The detailed fulfillment of the Lord's strange plan. You really see it in verses 8 through 21. 8 through 14 serve as the execution of the specific plans that we were just given. And so I'll summarize for the sake of time. You see a a train of people, a train of marchers, armed men, followed by priests with ram's horns, followed by priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, followed by a rear guard that are following the Ark. And trumpets, it tells us, are blowing continually. Joshua instructs the people to keep your mouths closed. Don't shout. Don't do anything. Don't say anything until I give the word, and then you'll shout. And so they make their trip around the city. They come back to the camp, end of day one. This repeats on days two through six. And then comes the big day, the seventh day, right, on verse 15. And so read with me in verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on, the day, on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now let me remind you, let's take a break right there, let's pause right there, because the text does, and let me remind you of what has been specifically commanded. In verse 5, if you go back to verse 5, it says that they're told that they will shout when the marching's finished and the walls of the city will fall flat. So they've already been told the outcome. Then verse 10, it's, it's reemphasized to them. He tells them that they're not to open their mouths on these previous marches because there's a very specific time when they will shout and the walls will fall flat. And so then you get to the end of verse 16 and the fulfillment of that shout. You see the command from, from Joshua. It's finally here. It's finally time to shout. After seven days, he commands the people to shout, and they do. They shout, and you would expect the very next thing in verse 17 to be the fulfillment of verse 5. That you would expect the walls to fall flat, right? Because that's what God said would happen. But that's not how the writer describes it to us. That's not how we're given the scriptures. Instead, like the writer of Joshua has done previously, he pauses the story right there. At the moment of this climax, in the build and the excitement of this text, he pauses it and he goes into a twofold warning that Joshua gives the people. Look at this. Look at verse 17. They're told to spare Rahab the prostitute that we learned about in chapter 2. So that's kind of the remainder of her story is unfolding. And then in verse 18, it says, Do not touch the spoils of the city. They'll bring trouble upon you. So these two warnings, spare Rahab, don't touch the spoils of the city. And these precious metals, verse 19, 
There, there are some precious metals that belong to the Lord, but other than that, you keep your eyes after lusting after their stuff. It's not for you. It'll bring destruction upon you. And so he gives these warnings in these verses, and then finally the writer picks back up with the shout. Look at verse 20. So then the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people had heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So the question then for us as readers, as Christians, as believers, as the church today, why does the, the writer delay the climax like this? Why go to these great lengths? Not just, why don't you just tell us that the wall fell flat in verse 16 or at the beginning of verse 17 when we would expect to see it? Well, he does this because what Joshua says to them in verses 17 through 19 is more important than the outcome of the walls falling down in verse 20. Let me explain what I mean there. The commands of God for them would be imperative for them to obey. The walls falling down is, a, is assumed. It's a given. Of course God's going to keep his part of the deal. The writer's highlighting the priority of obedience to God's command over the victory itself. More important than this victory, more important than these walls falling, more important even than you going into the land, Israel, is that your heart be obedient before me. It doesn't matter that these walls come down if you disobey the commands of God. And we see this really clearly in, in next week's text. It's chapter 7 as we unfold uh, yet another battle that will have the exact opposite conclusion, right? Here the people are obedient to God and he blesses them with an unheard of victory, a miraculous victory. Next week, what seems like a given in victory, in battle, will result in utter destruction because they fail to be obedient in the very commands that God gives them here at Jericho. He's showing us the priority of obedience in our lives. And like Israel, our obedience to God is more important than the outcome of our circumstances. We need to hear this from God's word. And I know it sounds like every week we're talking about obedience. And I told you this would be a theme of Joshua that we see week after week. How is your heart before the Lord? Are you obeying the commands of God? It's more important than how your day goes tomorrow. It's more important than the result of whatever circumstance or trial that you're walking through right now. The ends do not justify the means. Obedience to God's word is what matters. And this is further highlighted in the fact that the whole Jericho narrative, think about this, all that we read about Jericho here is 30 verses. And of those 30 verses, only one and a half of them say anything about the triumph itself. Only one and a half of them say anything about the walls coming down and the, the, the destruction of Jericho and the people conquering Jericho. This should be a clue for us that God's concern is our obedience, not our circumstances. He can handle our circumstances. He wants our hearts. Notice, too, what did not happen after the walls fell. As you're looking at the text before you, notice what did not happen. You see none of the Israelites applauding their peers for their parts in the victory, Right? There's, there's none of this like, hey, Tom, man, that was a beautiful high C note that you hit on your ram's horn. Just stellar job on the ram's horn, bro. They're, 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 well, man, it's, it's really not me. It was really that excellent vibrata that you put on that shout, man. He's like, yeah, well, you know, I've been working on that in my downtime. After we crossed the Jordan and we're eating the produce of the land, I've been working on that and that shout. And it was, it was pretty good, wasn't it? But, but, but I tell you what, you hear Susie, she really needs to shape up before our next shouting match. She didn't, she didn't have it put together too well. You don't see any of that because there's no room for that sort of foolishness. Why? Because on that day, on that day when those walls fell, there is not an Israelite or Canaanite person that had any question about whose victory this really was. It was God's and God's alone. 
There was no high-fiving one another because God alone had brought this victory by his power and by his strength. And we do well to recognize the same truth in our lives. Whatever we have, whatever's been given to us is by God's grace alone, by his good pleasure and his gifts. Number four, fourth scene that we see and the final one in our text. And this was a tough one. This is a tough one. We see God's sovereignty over judgment and mercy. God's sovereignty over judgment and mercy. You see it in verses 21 through 25. Look first at, at verse 21. And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, sheep, oxen, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now we read this, and this seems incredibly harsh to us. The, the new atheism movement claims that these types of judgments in the Old Testament are actually xenophobic, ethnic cleansings that demonstrate that there isn't really a God, but if he existed, then he would be some trite, moody, petty God who goes thumping around whoever he chooses. And so how do we answer that sort of a, a claim? How do we answer that sort of a criticism against, one, the Bible, the Old Testament, but two, our God? Is the God of mercy in the New Testament the same God of annihilation in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Let me show you this. An important verse for us as we study through the rest of Joshua, because this is not the first, I mean, this is the first, but it's not the last time that we'll see this sort of complete, utter destruction, the text says. We'll see it throughout the book of Joshua. So an important verse for us. You can write this in the margins of your Bible or in your bulletin because it's important. Genesis chapter 15 Verse 16, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God explains to Abraham, this is all the way back with Abraham at the beginning of his call out of Ur, which at that time, Abraham's a pagan himself. He's no different than these Canaanites that we're reading about that are being destroyed here. That in itself shows you the grace and mercy of God, that he's completely right and just in calling anyone to himself. But back in Genesis 15, 16, you see God explain to Abraham that his descendants would not immediately inherit the land of Canaan. And says, he says that they'll come back in the fourth generation. And here's the key for us. Genesis 15, 16, he says this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The implication there is that God's being patient with the present inhabitants of the land, with the ones that are now living in Canaan, that are uh, pagan, idolatrous people. He's being patient with them, but there's coming a day when their sins will reach, reach the limit and he would use Abraham's family to bring judgment on them. Abraham's family would be the tool, the, the weapon in which he inflicts his righteous justice on sin. Just let me remind you, he's totally just in doing at any time. Even one sin against a holy God is worthy of infinite judgment, of punishment, of condemnation, of wrath. And so at any moment, he can judge this nation whenever he gets ready to, ready to do so, in any way that he gets ready to do so. I mean, you see the flood, right? It's, a, it's a meet, immediate and in quick destruction. His judgment poured out. You see it throughout the Old Testament. So this understanding is further emphasized by the rest of the New Te Old Testament. Think about the way that the, the land of Canaan is described in Leviticus chapter 18. It says that the residents of Canaan were, were involved in gross sexual perversions. You go and read Leviticus 18 and, and see it for yourself. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, you learn that they have this, the Canaanites have this zeal for, for magic and divination and, and pagan worship. And that their hearts are hard before the Lord. They're unrelenting in their, in their waywardness. And so Israel is not to assume a holier-than-thou attitude 
Not that Israel has it put together. Instead, God is bringing his people into the land, not because they're more deserving. God is bringing his people into the land, at least in part, because the wickedness of the Amorites has, has met its limit. It's come to fruition. It's time for the Lord's judgment upon the Amorites and the Canaanites. That's why you see in Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is another one. You can write it beside Genesis chapter 15 because it's, it's equally important for us in understanding this idea in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. God speaking to Israel says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Israel receives grace. Israel receives mercy because God is good and he decides to give them the land. At the same time, God is judging. He's pouring out his wrath on sin, uh, especially in the case of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And so the conquest then is not a bunch of land-hungry mercenaries uh, that are driving out a bunch of innocent people on behalf of their vicious and unjust God. Instead, the conquest is the God of the Bible using a not-so-righteous people, Israel, as instruments of his just judgment towards the people who had persistently revealed their iniquity. We have to understand that. There's no innocence here. And so contrary to the critics, the conquest is not gross injustice, but it's the highest and most patient form of justice in a just God who's been long-suffering with them, but they were unrelenting in their sin. That's what we see before us in the conquest. And if that were not convincing enough for us, seeing the buildup of, of, of Genesis and Deuteronomy, and this, this long tenured history that, that God has with these peoples that are, that are, again, under his lordship but not submitting to his lordship, then you have the rest of our text before us this morning. And watch how beautiful this is. If that were not convincing enough for us of the mercy and justice of God, you have the conclusion of the Jericho narrative in verses 20 through 22 through 25. We've already studied these verses because we picked them up when we looked at uh, Rahab in chapter 2. We studied the end of Rahab's life, which, is the, which would be these verses. I think they're included here, though, because they, 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 in part, contrast what we see in verse 21, right? In verse 21, God is completely just. He's completely right in his complete destruction and judgment of Jericho. He's a just God. He's right in judging them. But then in 22 through 25, he's completely just. He's completely right in his mercy directed towards Rahab, the former prostitute, and her entire family. We found way back in chapter 2, right, that the, that the Canaanites, that the Amorites, they had heard of the mighty acts, the mighty power of God. Rahab herself confessed this. She testified. They had heard of the miracles of how God dried up the Red Sea. The Canaanites and Amorites, they had heard of God's miraculous provision over Israel in the wilderness. They had heard how God had rescued them from Egyptian slavery. They had heard of, of Pharaoh's army being destroyed before the Lord, yet they refused to bow the knee to God. They'd heard this truth, just like Rahab had. They'd heard this truth. And Rahab was willing to change. Others could have done so too, but they didn't. In chapter 9, you'll get to chapter 9 of Joshua, and you'll see the Gibeonites and other people who, who instead of being destroyed, they, they sue for peace, they settle, basically. And, 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 and others could have done so too, but they didn't. In their hardness of their hearts, they resisted Yahweh. They would not bow their knee before Yahweh. And so it's clear for us today that there are consequences. Will you resist God and suffer the just judgment that is coming your way? Or will you bow the knee to the one who sent his son to take your judgment for you? That's the beauty of the gospel. Is that there's no complete annihilation. There's no destruction of us for, for sins. Even some of the same sins that they were caught up in because Christ died for us. That's what we see on Calvary. He took the judgment. 
He took our penalty, our sin, in dying on the cross. And so you have two options. Will you submit to him and allow him to take your judgment? Or will you suffer your judgment just like the Canaanites and the Amorites did? That's that's the picture of the New Testament. That's the gospel that we have before us. So where does this concept then, where does this concept of judgment and Israel's part as the the tool of judgment, how 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 do we apply that today in the church, right? I said we would try to ask this question each week. How do we see ourselves in Israel and how do we not see ourselves in Israel? This is one of those places where we do not see ourselves following in Israel's steps. So let me show you this first. It's important to understand we don't apply these principles because we live in a very different time in a different place. Yes, evil is still rampant in our world. Um, yes, it's, it's still a terrible culture that we live in, and God would be completely right and just and condemning if he, if, when he chooses to. But we don't go and annihilate people because we live in a very different time and a place. Uh, an indicator of how much we are truly God's people will, will be, an, uh, will be uh, evidenced in how much we have a, a hatred for sin in our own hearts. That's the difference today. How, how much will we try to kill sin? Will we try to rid sin in our own lives? Now, that, that's what points us, uh, us, us out as, as the people of God today. So it must be a priority for us before we ever begin to point at sin in the world or sin on Facebook or sin in our culture. How much are we pointing at sin in our own hearts? Second, we must know that our battles are spiritual and not physical. They're spiritual battles, not physical battles. Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, verses 12 and 13. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. We don't engage in some holy war and fight against individuals and shed blood and, and take up the sword and war against uh, a sin in our, in our culture. We make war on sin through prayer, through God's word, through the spirit of God moving and changing hearts. That's so much more effective than us trying to take up a sword and fight it out of somebody. Not jihad, but Jesus wins the victory for God's people. So let me bring all this together for us. I know we've covered a lot of text and a lot of ideas this morning, some heavy ones, some difficult ones, but let me bring all of this together and give us four principles from the Jericho narrative, from the story of Jericho that still apply to us today, that are applicable for us as we leave this place today. Number one, I'll do these quickly. Number one, we need to search out, listen to, and adopt God's strategy for victory that he reveals to us in his word. We need to search out, listen to, and adopt his strategy for victory that he reveals to us in his word. It's the, it's, the, it's the rule book that he's given us. It's the guidelines that he's given us. You've heard it called a love letter. Friends, devotionals, theological works, commentaries are great. They're helpful tools. But you will know God's word for your life as you look at his book, the Bible. Know God's word. Search it out and listen to it. Number two, Christ is still commander. He is still commander. He is still the one in charge. He's still the one that is ruling. It is our job to trust him, to believe his promises, and obey with detailed and meticulous attention. The one who is our commander. We don't always need to know why we're called to a certain course of action, but just that God has spoken, his word says it, and we obey it. He's still our commander. We fall in line under our commander. Number three, the battle still belongs to the Lord. Just as Jericho belonged to the Lord, it was his victory. He accomplished it. Whatever battles that you're facing, whatever things that you're going through, whatever trials, struggles, persecutions, temptations you're dealing with, he still is the Lord of the battle. It's still his battle. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows exactly how to bring us through it. 
I mean, God's word says this to us, that there's nothing outside of his sovereign control. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. Charles Spurgeon said this, if everything works together for our good, then there's nothing left to work for our ill. Man, rejoice in that this week. There's nothing left to work for your ill. If God is, is, is the one you're following, if you are under his lordship, if he saved you, all things work together for your good. Number four, we do not waste our time or our energy speculating or trying to imagine how God might achieve what seems to us to be frankly impossible. We don't waste our time or energy speculating, trying to imagine how God might achieve what he's already told us he would do. No one would have thought of God's strategy for the, the Jericho conquest in a million years. And yet, the reality is, Joshua did not have to engineer a victory. He didn't have to come up with this battle plan. He did not have to, 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 to work it out on his own. It wasn't in his strength or in his uh, military wisdom. God accomplished it. God simply gave them the battle. Trust the Lord this week in your life. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word. God, I pray that you would give us hearts to receive it. You'd give us spiritual eyes to see, God, what you've called us to do in your word, that you'd give us a hunger and a desire to spend time in your word, that we might know what you've called us to. And then by your spirit, you would produce obedience in every heart in this room. God, if there's one here today that's not submitted to your lordship, God, I pray today that the options would be super clear. That on the one hand, we can suffer just judgment and wrath because we have not bowed our knee. We've not confessed our sins to you, just like the Amorites and the Canaanites. Or we can submit ourselves before you, Lord, and trust that Jesus' finished work on the cross has accomplished our salvation. We can repent and believe today, and you have received our just penalty on our behalf. God, I pray that every person in this room would, would fall under option number two, that today everyone in this room would know that they've trusted Jesus as Savior. God, would you do a work in this room? Call us to yourself. Form Christ in each and every heart. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Let's sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. A thousand songs are not enough to say how great you are. The glories of your majesty, the triumphs of your love. Sing awake. Awake my soul to sing the glories of my God and King. Arise and praise the one worthy of the songs of a thousand songs. Sing. He breaks the power. You break the power of all our sin. You set the captive free. You make the broken heart rejoice. New life the dead receive. Awake my soul to sing. The glories of my God and King, arise and praise the one worthy of the songs of a thousand tongues. Forever you are, forever you are worthy. It's true, he's worthy. Let's sing to him. Forever you are, forever you are worthy. Forever you are, forever you are worthy, forever you are, forever you are worthy, oh, wake my soul to sing the glories of my God and King. Arise and praise the one worthy of the songs of a thousand tongues. Awake my soul to sing the glories of my God and King. Arise and praise the one Worthy of the songs of a thousand tongues. You're worthy of the songs of a thousand tongues. You're worthy of the songs of a thousand tongues. Amen. Let's have a seat. Anna's going to come up and, and share with us.